ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Selena Green with you for today's Country Hour. In a moment, take a closer look at what farmers need to be thinking about into the future as more and more attention is focused on emissions from agriculture. And farmers, fishers, foresters will be stumping up for increased biosecurity charges. But should they be getting better bang for their buck? They either need to modernise their systems or they need to put more staff and resources into service the antiquated processes that are there now. That's all to come in this next half an hour. If you'd like to join me at any time, pick up the phone and give me a call on 1300 222891 or text me on 0467 922891. Well, as the focus on emissions from farms intensifies... How should farmers be planning for the future? And what sort of sustainability assurances are customers going to demand of farmers? Well, consultant Robert Poole is a partner at CVA Australia. He addressed some of these questions at a grain conference this week, and he says farmers need to prepare for increased scrutiny. I suppose my message was that the, the industry and individuals like start prepping for that. I think that that's logical. The New Zealand industry, agricultural industry, is already going to full reporting. Um, there'll be parts of the Australian sector that the customers and will we'll start asking for that as well. So I don't want people to, you know, panic about how soon that has to be done. In fact, I said we've got time. We need to do the R&D that's in behind, uh, you know, transport fuels and soils. And there's a lot of work to be done. So start planning, have a really logical, well-planned um, sector plan and uh, you know start the work towards what is an inevitable change of the entire economy, not just agriculture, but all the parts of the economy, energy, construction, waste management, etc. There is a lot of focus on emissions calculators and there are a few different products on the market. You had some interesting thoughts on those? Yeah, they're, no, they're, to- they're totally fine and I, I think, you know, I come out of the dairy sector as well and we- we've been working on nutrient calculators and, and, and so that ma- mass balance approach to, you know, farm nutrient management and now farm emissions, that, that's, a solid, that's a solid approach. We need to have that but I guess my message is, is reporting is one thing but actually the way the whole system works... The way we participate in what people call the carbon economy, I actually don't think we've got that right yet. I think that needs a lot of rethinking because certain parts of it, like ACUs, I'm not sure how well they apply to agriculture. So I'm kind of... My hypothesis is we do need to perhaps rethink how agriculture works in uh, with you know, the emissions market, the carbon market, etc., and you also spoke about um, baselines and, and recognition of, of farmers already doing best practice in, in reducing emissions and sequestering carbon? Yeah, so, so that was a sort of a case in point, I guess, that in certain soils, farmers already have really high organic carbon. Um, I've been well-schooled in this by certain mentors of mine. So they're not going to necessarily be able to participate easily in carbon credits because their soils are already at high organic carbon, high organic matter and high carbon content. 
So we just need to think about how to reward everyone who's done all the work already, where they've got a very sustainable system already, whether that's in soil carbon or river management or animal welfare. And you know, I'm just not sure about thinking it purely as a emissions calculators and carbon credits is the right model. I think there's something probably a better way to do it. Biofuels, you, you spoke about them and you think that's going to be a, a huge growth market in Australia? Yeah, I was talking about going to some, some of the global conferences that I get to attend and, you know, b the big companies like Maersk, the shipping company, and obviously the Australian, you know, the airlines and the rail, one of the farmers asked about rail freight. You know, all of the, those transport sectors very integrated into the grains industry. So, you know, I think it's a huge issue for the grains industry. And, of course, if they are going to move to biofuels, someone's got to grow the raw materials for that. That's not going to come out of waste oils and stuff. That has to come out of agriculture. So I think it's going to be a massive part of the grains industry. We need to do it in a way where it doesn't affect grains available for the, for the food supply chain. So it's going to be about new farm systems productivity and maybe particularly northern Australia. You know, we've probably got more stable or mature supply chains down here, but having worked up in northern Australia, I think there's some really exciting opportunities up there. Andrew Wiedemann also spoke this morning and his advice around uh, things like carbon credits and entering deals to, to reduce your, your emissions or on behalf of others, for example, his advice was don't sign anything at this stage. What would you say about that? Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But, you know, I think um, some of the reviews I've done in this space, you know, people forget it is going to impact things like contracts and legal agreements and what product you essentially supply and consign to uh, whoever you're selling to. So one of the things farmers will need to do is kind of understand what they're doing. You know, in some cases they even get, you know, the, it, will, it could affect legal advice, for example. So carbon credits are a classic example of that in terms of if someone wants to buy them off you and that kind of thing. What actually are your legal rights? What are your legal risks? So it's a new form of business. It hasn't really formed up yet. So Andrew's probably right, just get good advice before you do anything in this space. Uh, just finally, and perhaps hard to comment generally, because it varies from farm to farm and commodity to commodity, but in general the, the focus, the, the intense focus on emissions reduction and carbon sequestration, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing for farmers? I guess it's, a, it's, it's moved into our reality, so I don't look at it like that anymore. I think I just look at it as, OK, how do we actually operationalise it? How do we do the good, good R&D? Uh, how do we potentially even make money out of it? I don't look at it philosophically anymore. I just look at it through a lens of R&D, data, and, and doing it in a way where it's... A, I think it's always true with anything. It's not just agriculture, but all business. Do it in a way where it's simple, it integrates into what we do already. I kind of used the example today of, like, product quality. And, you know, so we should think of it, like, in a systematic way and just make it part of our, our future and, and do that over the next sort of 5, 10, 20 years. And is it just a reality that, that you have to embrace? You've got no choice? I think so, because our, our customers and our global markets are going to need it anyway so I think it is a reality and we're better to kind of plan it systematically like that we do have time most of the company CEOs are still talking about 2050 targets I guess at some point we'll have more interim targets and if one of our key markets did turn around and, and demand something new quite soon we at least should be ready 
That was Robert Poole there. He's a partner at CVA Australia, speaking with Angus Verley at a grains conference this week. It's 12 minutes past 12. Well, the freight sector is generally happy with increased charges for biosecurity announced by the federal government this month, but are offering to pay more if the government could speed up the service. The new levies will pay for things like container inspection services, sniffer dogs at airports and X-ray machines in mail centres. It's all about keeping passengers out of the country. Farmers, fishers, foresters will have to stump up about 6% of the money and they wanted a container levy introduced to cover the rising cost of biosecurity. Well, Paul Zelaya is from the Freight Alliance, which represents the import-export sector. He told David Clawton they'd be happy to pay more if they could get a better service. It's a relatively modest increase, to be honest. So on the 1st of July last year, we had an increase um, on what we call our full import declaration. So every time there's an import consignment comes in, a, a declaration is made. Uh, the in, For air cargo, was $38. It increased to $43. For sea cargo, it was $58. And, then it, and it increased to $63. So by about $5 per declaration, um, bearing in mind, you've got about 4.2 million full import declarations a year, so so that sum does add up. So the, we did hear a lot of discussion, and I remember talking to you about a different way of raising money, which is a levy on every container. So they didn't go that way. Why do you think that is? Look, I think that was a smart move. Um, again, you know, the way that was going to be administered, it was either going to be charged against um, the stevedores. Uh, at the point of uh, discharge or, or by the shipping lines. And look, by the time they would have paid that, added on some admin fee and the like, and by the time all those costs would have cascaded down the supply chain, um, I think those fees would have been further inflated. So to move away from a container levy, I think, was sensible. Um, and at, at the time, we, we suggested, look, you've been using these full import declarations now for, for you know, decades. Why not just continue using that? And uh, it appears that's the way that they, they've opted to go. So what impact do you think that those cost increases will have on the freight sector? Look, they're not significant. Um, it's an extra, like I said, about an extra $5 per full import declaration. Um, and... Um, that, that can be quite easily absorbed. Um, there's also going to be a, a more controversial one. They're going to now introduce a charge on low-value goods, so your internet trade, if you like. Um, so at the moment, any consignment that comes into the country under the value of $1,000 uh, doesn't require a formal declaration and hence is exempt from cost recovery fees. So now going forward, uh, the Department of Agriculture will be looking to collect about $27 million from that sector, which will translate to somewhere in the vicinity about, of about $0.40 cents, uh, more per low-value uh, import that comes in. Right. That will be imposed on um, the cargo reporters, so the likes of your DHLs and your FedExes and the like, um, and they'll, they'll look to build that into their, their, their freight rates and their charging regime. And in terms of um, the the freight sector, I mean, the cost of container transport at the moment's going up again, isn't it? Because of global conflicts and other, and other things. So yeah. I suppose you know, like to send a, a container these days is you know it's it's it's, it's about three thousand at the moment if it's, as an average cost around the world. Oh, look, it varies. You know, you've got you know out of Europe now um, with the extra journeys around the Red Sea, it, it's, it's even well beyond that, plus surcharges. Um, so it is very expensive. Um, but look, coming back to what can be controlled here on shore, 
Our views are that on a couple of different fronts. One is on the yes, the importers are the risk creators; they should be paying a fee. Um, but we suggested, you know, that that five dollar fee, perhaps the importers could have even paid more if they would have got a better process on on import. So at the moment, we've got a situation where importers are paying these uh, cost recovery fees, but they are facing massive delays in document assessment and at times inspections, which leads to thousands of dollars in um, uh, container detention costs when there's delays to return the empty containers, uh, extra storage and just missing contracts and the like. So if the government would have gone down the path of saying, look, producers, don't worry about it at all, although you're going to be a beneficiary of biosecurity, we're not going to hit you up for this extra $47.5 million. We'll put it back on the risk creator, the importers. Um, so to recover that $47.5 million, it would have been an extra $11.50 or thereabouts per full import declaration that importers would have had to pay. And then I'm saying, why don't we even bump that up to, say, $20, a full import declaration, but deliver a top quality service for importers so they don't incur other... Well, how could they do costs. that? What do, you, what do you want them to do differently? They, they, either, they either need to modernise their systems or they need to put more staff and resources into service the antiquated processes that are there now. Paul Zalay there from the Freight Alliance speaking to David Clawton. And it's 18 minutes past 12 here on The Country Are You with Selena Green. Well, the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation Board was recently meeting with industry researchers and government in Port Lincoln all about gaining a better understanding of fishing and aquaculture initiatives here in the state. General Manager for Research and Development Investment, Crispian Ashby, says it's important for the board directors to have meetings in regional areas and meet up with these key stakeholders. He spoke with Brooke Nindorf about what they wanted to take away from the trip. And so the FRDC, it's very important for us to, we have a number of board meetings each year, about five each year. Um, it's really important for us to be able to get around to our stakeholders and, and get our board to interact with our, our stakeholders and, and those that we, we're basically servicing and providing their R&D needs. It's such a wide range of, of industries when it comes to, to fishing and aquaculture here in Port Lincoln. Have you managed to meet most of them today? Yes, no, we're managing to meet most of them. It's, it is a very diverse stakeholder base that we work with because we work with, obviously, the Indigenous sector, we work with the commercial wild catch, the commercial aquaculture and the recreational sector, as well as also looking at the needs of the community. And so what are some of the key points that you want to take away from a meeting like this with the different industries? Um, it really is an opportunity for our stakeholders to, to meet with the board and get some of their, their ideas, their issues and, and some of the things they see as opportunities uh, across to our board members so that it can help inform, I guess, our strategic planning and, and also our investment in future R&D needs. Is there anything in particular today that you've taken away that the board will think, oh, this is something we need to work on or, or some research that we might need to look at? I think we're hearing a lot about um, capacity and capability building, you know, looking at things such as um, workforce, building uh, capacity, looking at training opportunities, also looking at innovation and what we can use with regard to building new knowledge platforms, building new data networks, how data can be better used and, and help inform some of the, uh, the management of, of resources and so forth. But also not only that, but recognising traditional knowledge and how we bring that into the forefront and into the, some of those decision-making processes. And can that be, I guess, used across all industries? It doesn't have to sort of be individualised for each fishing sector? Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be, you know, specific issues or needs for, for individual sectors, but 
there is often going to be those sort of issues that are common across many. So it's really important for us to look at how we can connect those dots, if you like, between those different sectors and between those different needs. So it's, it's probably more about that collaborative approach, whether it be in South Australia or even broader. With the FRDC 2024, we're into February already. Is there any key projects that, um, that you're excited about working on this year? Look, we've got several at the moment. Um, we have um, obviously working with Persa and Sadi, as well as uh, the industry and the recreational sector with um, SNAPA, so the SNAPA Science Program. Obviously some concerns with SNAPA stocks in the state and really uh, working with a quite, quite a uh, involved program of research and development to look at how we can bring SNAPA back. So um, we also have um, a couple of uh, really quite exciting uh, programs of work that we've been undertaking that will be coming out this year. Uh, we have the Shark and Ray Report Card, which is actually uh, an assessment of, of the status of shark and rays around the country, um, and also our status of Australian Fish Stocks Report. So that's basically bringing together uh, a lot of the stock assessment scientists, the knowledge about stock assessments from around the country, and again, as I mentioned, that collaborative approach, really looking at how our fish stocks are doing around the country, you know, where maybe they're not so good and we actually need to make a bit of a difference, but also, you know, I guess acknowledging that we actually do have a, a lot of sustainable stocks around the country and just putting the science and the facts on the table so everyone can see them. With the shark and ray report... How, does that tie, how do they tie in together, those two species? Um, so basically, though I won't go into too much scientific <laughs> detail, but um, they are in, in some ways quite similar. They say, um, share similar life characteristics, both chondrixians, but is um, the ability for them to, um, to bring together the information with regard to um, the rays. Previously, it was only on sharks. We've now brought rays into that picture. to so basically bring the information forward, given, you know, the... We, we understand there have been concerns with regard to um, the status of some of those species and so we thought it was important to bring together the, the available information to really, um, I guess, shine a light on, on, on how they're going and the news isn't too bad. And just back on to the, the SNAPA project with, with Sadi and, and Persa, how important is it to get that right for South Australia moving forward? Oh, look, it's, it's an iconic species for the state. Uh, it's, it's important to, to all potential uh, user groups. And so I think it's a really important program to, to bring that species um, back and, and look at rebuilding those populations and understand how we can do it better in the future. With the Shark and Ray report, obviously sharks have been a, a quite topical at the, at the moment. What's come from this report in particular that's, that's of interest? Well, it's interesting, obviously, that, you know, I guess there are quite a few topical uh, shark species. However, this recent report has been looking at um, 331 species. So obviously there is a lot of diversity when we, when we talk sharks and rays. It's been an interesting process because it actually looks at how we can compare, the, as I mentioned before, the status of Australian fish stocks criteria and its assessment criteria with the International Union, Un, Union for Conservation of Nature red list reporting process. So what we've actually done is married up the two methodologies. So we can basically um, use a similar method as the status of Australian fish stocks and assess these species. Now of those 331 species, 225 of those have been assessed as sustainable. Obviously it does highlight where we, we do have some concerns and we probably need to look at management of those species and what R&D needs maybe uh, are required basically to, to look at how we can improve the status of those stocks. Um, but I mean it is good news when you look at a, you know, a very a high proportion of those are actually sustainable stocks. That is the FRDC's General Manager for Research and Development Investment, Crispian Ashby, and that is the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation Board. He was speaking there with Brooke Neindorf. You're listening to Selena Green 
on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Said to the Weather Bureau, our forecaster today is Jenny Horvat. Hello, Jenny. Good afternoon, Selena. And it sounds like we might have some interesting, very hot weather on its way. Yeah, that's right. And we're already seeing that hot weather out west. Just having a look at some of those maximum temperatures so far for today. Nullarbor already up to 41.7. Sojourner up to 41.6. Tarkula 41. Even Woodner up to 40. So quite a few 40s there and a lot of temp- lot of places already in the high 30s for today. So the situation is we have our high pressure system out over the Tasman Sea. That's um, helping bring in some of that hot northerly air in. And then we've got this um low pressure system and associated um, front coming across from the west. So we are starting to see those temperatures build um, ahead of that system that we are expecting to see move across from the west later in the day. As a consequence, we do have a severe weather warning out for damaging winds. So that is for parts of the west coast and the northwest pastoral district. So we are expecting to see some damaging wind gusts. Jenny, I'm not sure if you can hear me, but uh, your microphone has dropped out a little bit. If you could get Give it a little wriggle for us. Okay, is that a bit better? No, I don't know if we can hear you quite clearly. Jenny, can we hear you all right? I can hear you, uh, Selena. Is that a bit better? I think it might be my headphones in the studio, Jenny. I interrupted there. You carry on. <laughs> so that's right. So as I was talking about, we've got this cold front coming across from the west. We've got that warning out for damaging wind gusts. So we are expecting to see some of those wind gusts moving across the west coast and parts of the north, southern parts of the northwest pastoral district. So could be seeing those wind gusts up about 90 kilometres per hour. So we are looking at that this afternoon, just ahead of the front and just following that front as well. We will start to see those conditions easing from the west later in the afternoon and into the evening period. So some of those locations that may be infected affected include um, Sojourna, Maralinga, Cook, Nullarbor, Fowlers Bay and Streaky Bay for today. So a little bit west, windy out there out west. We'll see that change continuing to move across the state overnight and into Wednesday. Not expecting a lot of rainfall with this system, um, but we could see some thunderstorms developing out west um, later today with that system as well. And again, looking at that thunderstorm risk moving across the West Coast District overnight reaching sort of central parts in the morning. So that does include southern parts of York Peninsula, Kangaroo Island, the bottom of the Fluria, and then moving into the southeast later in the morning and into the afternoon period. Down in the southeast there, we'll be watching those storms for severity. They could produce some damaging wind gusts as they move through with the passage of that system. Again, we are looking at very hot um, conditions on the Wednesday. So we are likely to see some elevated fire dangers with quite a few areas likely to be in the extreme. So watch this space this afternoon for the fire weather warning and associated fire bans that the CFS will put out. Also expecting to see some thunderstorm development tomorrow afternoon across the northeast as that trough continues to move through. That trough will stall across the north of the pastoral districts as we head into Thursday and Friday. So depending on what side you are, still maintaining some heat um, into the end of the week there, no relief in sight really for parts up in the in the north, up near the NT border through there. And with that trough lingering, as long as the heat hanging around, we're also expecting to see um, thunderstorms possible across the north of the pastoral districts well into the weekend before contracting off to the northeast and northwest on Sunday and possibly starting to see some development coming back early in the week ahead of another system due there um, in the midweek. Like I said, as 
because this system comes across not expecting a lot of um, shower activity but could see a little bit across the southern agricultural area um, tomorrow but not expecting a lot with that. So generally looking at totals of less than a couple of millimetres. But further north we could be seeing falls of sort of 10 to 2 millimetres possible with our thunderstorms. Pretty patchy with the rainfall there but adding up maybe over the northwest after multiple days could be seeing some higher falls up in the far northwest there up until Saturday, maybe 10 to 30 millimetres, but um, pretty isolated and a bit of a watch this space to where the storms form and how much we see coming out of those ones there, Selena. All right, thanks for that, Jenny. And sorry to interrupt you before, I'm going to have to go get myself some new headphones. (laughs) No, okay. (laughs) You've done well. Jenny Horvath there from the Weather Bureau. Uh, The forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow, both the upper and western districts are both expecting a sunny day with the northeasterly winds around 15 to 25 k's an hour. Uh, Overnight temperatures for both districts will get down into the low 20s. In the day, they'll reach up into the low to mid 40s. It's coming up to half past 12 here on The Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. A bit more in a moment on the fallout of this abalone killing virus that's turned up in South Australian waters for the first time. It has been found in one of the state's busiest rock lobster fishing zones. So what could be the impact for that important industry? And how do you feel about goat meat? Have you tried it? Would you be keen? Australia's tastes are evolving, you know, and are looking for more and different things. And so I think from that point of view, goat can play a role, can grow, and I think will become more on the radar. And hopefully this is the first step, especially with, with chefs, to think outside you know, their, their current sort of roster of proteins that they've got on menus. As a promotion to try and get more Australian-grown goat on your plate and on menus, more on that before the news. But if you're already cooking with goat meat, let me know. One three hundred triple two eight nine one. That's the talkback number, or text me on zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Right now, though, here's Matt Coleman with your headlines. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, police are questioning a man after a fatal stabbing in Adelaide's north this morning. Paramedics were called to Henry Street at Powell just before 7 o'clock to find a 23-year-old victim with critical injuries. He was taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital where he died. The South Australian Museum is cutting 27 staff from its Research and Collections Division. The Public Service Association says the affected staff learns they were losing their positions yesterday during a presentation about the museum's transformation project, which will create 22 new positions. And the state government is bringing forward South Australia's renewable energy target by three years. It would see the state generating 100% of its electricity from renewable sources by 2027. More news at one o'clock.
Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, yesterday we brought you the news that the lethal abalone virus, viral ganglioneuritis, or AVG, has been found in South Australian waters for the first time. Now, there's been an immediate ban of all fishing activity in the zone between Neen Valley in the state's southeast and the Victorian border while authorities investigate. Local fishers are also banned from setting and collecting their pots within the control area off of Port McDonnell. So what effect will this have on the local lobster industry? Southeastern Professional Fishermen's Association Executive Officer Nathan Kimber says around 30 lobster fishers would be impacted so far by the outbreak. Yeah, we sort of learned on Friday and sort of into later Friday night yeah, that obviously the AVG virus in Avalonia had been detected in wild populations of Avalonia off the, off the coast of Port McDonnell and that you know, ultimately you know, a control area had been enacted you know, from the 24th of February, so from Friday night, you know, for two weeks through to the 8th of March, you know, where there was to be no, you know, commercial or recreational fishing from sort of Neen Valley in the west to the Victorian border, you know, reaching out to, you know, to anywhere up to um, sort of five nautical miles or, or sort of 10 kilometres. Has it, had this been something the association and, and fishers were concerned would happen? It's been ongoing in Victoria, but this is the first time this has happened in South Australia. Oh, look. I can't really speak on behalf of uh, of the abalone um, sector themselves, but from a rock lobster perspective, you know, our association was certainly aware, you know, that AVG had had uh, a presence in Victoria and that there were, you know, there had been outbreaks in Victoria. But I must admit it, it still, you know, came as somewhat of a surprise, you know, when it was detected uh, off the coast of, of Port Mac on Friday for sure. So how many lobster fishes are impacted at the moment, Nathan? Look, there would be somewhere in the vicinity of sort of maybe 25 to 30. Um, look, we're relatively fortunate that our season started on the 1st of September uh, and we're about 90% of the way through our quota for this season. But that's not to downplay the fact that there would certainly be some individual operators fishing out of, you know, Port McDonald and Blackfellas Caves, you know, that have still got relatively significant amounts of quota left to catch. You know, so they're certainly, you know, sort of keeping a close eye on, you know, how things progress with regards to uh, this control area over the coming, you know, com- coming days and weeks. Yes, is this control area right where they would normally be fishing or are there areas outside of it where they can still head to? Yeah, so there are certainly areas outside of the control area that, people can fish but one thing that we're currently working through at the moment with the incident management team and PERSA is how those fishes that have currently got gear so you know rock lobster pots in that affected area how they can essentially go and retrieve those pots and then disinfect them if that's what they need to do or dry them out you're unsure exactly of what the protocols look like yet but yeah basically so they can you know then go and reset that gear outside of whatever the control area might look like, you know, obviously over the next, you know, week or so. But, you know, then if it was to be redefined potentially post sort of 8 March, yeah, go and fish outside of whatever that, whatever that area looked like. And you'll get details from Persa on that soon? Yeah, we're hoping so. I know that it's been a focus of the incident management team sort of over the last 24 hours is to get some comms around those protocols out to our fishers. And, yeah, we certainly look forward to receiving them and then working with, you know, the regulators to make sure that, you know, we do what's asked of us. So would there, well, are there some pretty nervous fishers in South End Beachport worried this might start to spread, Nathan? Uh, Look, yes, 
there is a concern that this could spread, but you know we're working off the information we've got at the moment, and you know the area where the the detection was initially made, from my understanding, was a relatively small area. Obviously, the incident management team and Persa and Biosecurity SA, you have made that control area significantly larger, you know, which is you know, appropriate at this time to try and stop the spread. But you know, at the moment. Yeah, people would be nervous, but you know, we're yeah, you know, we really need more information, which hopefully we're going to get over the course of you know, the next next week or so. That is Executive Officer of the Southeastern Professional Fishermen's Association, Nathan, Kim, Nathan Kimber, and he was speaking there to Elsie Adamo. Well, abalone fishers in the southwest of Victoria are no strangers to AVG. This virus was detected in the Bay of Portland some 15 years ago when it wiped out up to 80% of the population in the western zone abalone fishery. It was found again around Portland as recently as 2021, but thankfully at the moment we're told there are no known active AVG outbreaks in Victoria. So what can South Australia learn from their experience? Craig Fox is a Western Abalone Diver and Chairman of the Western Abalone Divers Association. Uh, it's currently not live that we know of. Um, August last year, we had a, a very small outbreak in the Portland area, close to the Portland Harbour, um, and we set the control area around that very quickly, as of South Australia have done in, in uh, the Valley area now, and that was how we kept that one under control. Now, tell us about the history of AVG in the Portland area, because it what goes back 15 years? Yeah, 15 odd years. Back, you know, 2005 is the first time we first detected it. They'd never been seen in our zone or in Victoria um, before that that we're aware of. Um, so it was very um, disturbing. When we did find it, back then we didn't know a lot about the virus. So obviously it took a very uh, hard toll on our zone because it's something that no one had dealt with before uh, in Victoria and in other parts of the country. So we were sort of flying a little bit blind and not sure how the, or what the vectors were for moving the virus around and how far it could spread and how, how hard it would go. What were you able to learn from 2005 and then what again 2016, again 2021? Yeah, so along the path of time, we did learn a lot about the vectors of moving the, the virus, and we think that human intervention is definitely one way that the virus moves around. Unfortunately, it's not like a farmer's paddock or the like where you can you know, quarantine an area and have nothing coming in and out, but what we've learned over time is the best approach that we've found that has worked is to set up a control area, remove all types of fishing, so recreational, commercial, the whole lot, boat movement, um, and, and just let the let the virus run its course. That's that's the best path that we've found so far. So there's still no cure. You can't stop these abalone from being uh, infected. No, you can't. They, you know, for some reason, they carry that that viral disease, and it's something in the water. We think that that sets it off. Maybe it's a temperature. We're not sure. It could be weather event. It's, there's a lot of unknowns around why it presents and when it comes and goes. So um, there's still a lot of R and D to be done in this space, but it's so unusual that it's hard to put a finger on it. Did it spread? Did it spread to other reefs? What we found in Victoria, it spread with where reef was connected um, and it went against the tides, it went with the tide. Um, so it was very hard to, to figure it out. We thought it would only go one way, but it did, did go back on itself where the reef was connected. So we think the abalone coming in um, contact with each other, pass it on. Over the years, Craig, what impact has it had on local abalone business, on availability of exports, on, on numbers? Look, it's been a huge impact on our zone, in the western zone. It, it took our fishery from basically a 280-tonne fishery back to 
80 tonnes a few years ago. We're currently at 35 tonnes. Um, we are rebuilding the stocks and we have got positive signs in the area, but it's a long process. But we, you know, we lost 80 to 90% of our biomass that knocked us around a lot. So huge economical um, impact on, on our fishers, our local community, and all the way down the line to our supplies of gear, fuel uh, and exports. A lot of people got out or went and had to do another job um, and, and it's been hard because it's been their livelihood for so long and that's what we feel for our counterparts in South Australia that are looking at this now but I think they're, they're well placed is what they've done in setting up the control area and we you know, we hope for their sake that by locking it up they have very minimal impact. Uh, I think they've done, they've done all they can so far and that's why it's important that that control area is adhered to. That's Craig Fox there, who's a Western Abalone Diver and Chairman of the Western Abalone Divers Association, speaking to Beck Chave. It's just going on 19 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Well, Australia is the world's largest exporter of goat. Did you know that? But domestically, you'll actually struggle to find it on restaurant menus. But in a bid to put goat meat on the radar, Meat and Livestock Australia launched a goat track initiative to promote the product in restaurants and for those to cook it at home. Domestic market manager at Meat and Livestock Australia, Graham Yardy, told Lily McCure that while it's not the easiest product to market, there is a real potential for growth in the goat industry. On the local market, you know, we actually only keep a very sort of small amount of the domestic production for local consumption. So from a marketing perspective, we're, we're, we're pretty limited in, in how much sort of funding we have to play with. But um, what we try and do each year is try and work through many of the channels that we're already talking to. So things like food service, where we already do quite a bit of promotion of, of beef and lamb. How can we sort of pee back on that to talk, talk about goat? Uh, help people understand that. And while it's very hard to reach uh, a lot of consumers uh, that way, we can uh, reach many of the influencers, so people that own restaurants and um, you know make some of the buying decisions to really sort of get goat on the radar. Um, and we see that as the best uh, way to bring goat a little bit more into the, the forefront because what we know is that most people have not grown up with goat here, do not think of it as a, a protein um, that they would likely consume and many people just can't find it. So I guess the, the the genesis of this program is, well, you know, how can we actually highlight some of the places they can get it? Those people, those places that are already putting goat on the menu, let's try and highlight that a bit and, and show that to other venues as well that goat uh, you know, can be something they put on the menu and hopefully we get a bit of uptick in, in offtake in, in that way. As you were saying, there's such a demand coming from overseas, but why do you think it has been a slower uptake in the domestic market? In some ways, it's got a lot to do with, you know, we, we have uh, you know, fantastic produce here in the, in the sense of, you know, the country has really just been so used to, you know, fantastic proteins like our beef and lamb. We're really spoiled for choice here. So, you know, we're actually pretty slow moving when it comes to our repertoires, especially eating at home. You know, if you look at, you know, what's in the supermarket, grocery store now, you know, the, the number one sellers in most categories, even out of meat, are still relatively stable. And so we're, we're reasonably slow to adopt some things. Yes, around the edges, we might try a few new things and our, our taste might change a little bit, but it's pretty slow. Food service is a place where we are more likely to uh, try new things. And so that's, uh, that's what sort of we feel like makes a lot of sense here as a 
way to trial it. You know, people always get a bit anxious about cooking something new at home. So, you know, goat falls into that category where people are a bit unsure. Um, oh, well, what do I do with it? Not a lot, not as much content out there about how to um, how to cook with it and just that unfamiliarity. Yeah, I think when most people get in there and realise that, hey, cooks in a lot of ways, a lot like lamb, can have a, you know, much stronger flavour. And that's another thing, you know, for a lot of, palates here in Australia, you know, we do like some milder flavours, whereas, you know, you grow up in different parts of the world or you're very much familiar, you know, with spicier foods and the use of different ingredients that give a different flavour profile. You know, we're evolving in that sense, but we sort of, we still reasonably slow to adopt some of those changes. When you're working with vendors and restaurants, you know, what is it going to take for them to be able to get goat on their menu and for the public to see it more frequently in places that they go? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's an interesting challenge and it's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. So obviously, if you're a food service outlet, your, your number one thing is you need to get diners in the door. And it, it's striking this balance between giving people the types of familiar things that they are going, know they're going to enjoy and are going to be, uh, you know, easy to predict and know that they're going to be, you know, for business, they're going to be money makers, but also creating, you know, authentic experiences as well and giving people those opportunities to try new things as well. So, you know, if you're a restaurateur, let's say, um, striking that balance and, you know, GOAT is just evolving in that in that space. You know, there's, there's some product things that I know the industry is working really hard and doing exceptional work on that, on that quality side, so that's fantastic. That availability is still a, is still a, a challenge and still moving that through the supply chain. And But, you know, that's evolving as well as we get, you know, more production and more processes that are actually uh, taking on GOAT as well. So those things can evolve, but as, a, as an outlet, you know, one of the things we're talking to, you know, food service outlets is, okay, you know, is there going to be demand and what's the best way to do this? Are you seeing more sort of interest in restaurants, for example, putting goat on their menu and even from a chef's point of view, you know, are they sort of intrigued as well about how they can incorporate it into their work? Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, I think chefs are always interested in, it's a very competitive business and they're always interested in how they can make their venue more more interesting, more profitable, how they can attract a higher value uh, diner. Um, and also this piece around, well, how can they deliver on authentic experiences? And this is the wonderful thing about Australian cuisine, I think. And it's the reason why we have become a leader in food, in cuisine as well, is because we have taken the best of so many different cuisines and we have, you know, shaped and moulded them in our own Australian way into amazing food that has its origins often in in different cultures. The future of goat meat, does it look bright? Yeah, I I think so. I I think, you know, when I look at the investments that are being made by the industry, um, you know, with MLA into research and development, I think all of those things are the foundations for a, a strong future industry. You know, if I look at the demand globally, it's there. If I look at the cuisines that, uh, you know, GOAT is already established in, I actually think they're underdeveloped around the world and I think here in Australia. So I think that fits really well, you know. I think the only thing really sort of, well, not sort of the only thing holding back, but I think, you know, Australia's tastes are evolving, you know, and are looking for more and different things. And so I, I think from that point of view, GOAT, 
can play a role, can grow, and I think will become more on the radar. And hopefully this is the first step, especially with, with chefs, to think outside you know, their, their current sort of roster of proteins that they've got on menus. I think they're always looking for new and interesting things. That's the domestic market manager with Meat and Livestock Australia, Graham Yardy. He was speaking there to Lily McEwer. So have you considered cooking with goat? Thanks to our texter who's texted in to say, we've enjoyed it in the past when we've had our own goats. Not too different from lamb, but less fatty. Uh, yeah, if you've considered we can cooking with goat, let me know. Because wild and managed goats are in abundance across the country, yet they are hard to find in restaurants or even in supermarkets, which is all behind this marketing campaign to get more of it on the menu. Broken Hill chef, owner at the Old Saltbush restaurant, Lee Cheechin, says it's something she would use more if it was more readily available. I think it's really important to use what you have in your own backyard at the end of the day. You know, you can buy things away, but you don't know where it's how or who it's coming from, if it's been processed. Whereas if we are buying anything from away from other distributors, especially our bush foods, we try and make sure that it's ethical product and it comes from the community so that the money's going back into the community at the end of the day. So, I mean, for us, we like to support our own community here in Broken Hill. We, you know, we have a, all our staff are locals and we um, source as much regional product as we can. What's your experience in cooking with goat meat like? I love cooking with goat meat. We're getting some goat and we um, cook it at home and, you know, it's just delicious. I've cooked uh, on the menu. It's hard to source out here in Broken Hill. would love to have it on the menu. But it's just the um, having access to getting the goat is the biggest thing. You know, by the time you um, find a supplier, you have to then transport it, so then the price point becomes sometimes a little bit too expensive to put on the menu. And when you have previously had it on the menu, what, what meals have they included? Well, we normally get a whole goat, so that's normally bone-in, so best way to cook that is we've done that as a curry, or if we bone out the legs and um, just do like a, a lamb roast. The same way you, you would do a lamb roast, we actually cook it with um, pork belly fat over the top to keep it moist, because it's very lean meat, um, but most times it's as a curry. Do you think it's sort of an underutilised red meat sauce? Most definitely. I think we have so many goats out here running around, you know, we don't have an abattoirs or access to human consumption for, for the restaurant. And again, like I said, it's the price point, you know, to bring it here. It doesn't, you know, how much are we going to use? And I think if more restaurants were built using it locally or in regional areas, that might change. For customers to see it in restaurants, do you think that it would help with the, you know, the marketing of it and for people to see that it's actually quite a great, you know, protein source? Most definitely. I mean, it is one of the biggest um, consumed meats, you know, outside of Australia. A lot of people do eat goat, whereas here it's very second nature that people are like, no, I'll go for something else most times. But I think if the, it was more readily available, I think it would be a lot better. And do you think there's sort of a lot of potential there for goat meat to be, you know, consumed domestically? I think so, but, like, you know, coming back to the marketing, I think if there was a, you know, marketing push, we could probably see it a bit more, and if it was readily available, you know, you start, start off slow and, you know, introduce it, you know, more and more, get a few more high-profile chefs promoting it, I think you'd probably have a better cause to actually get it on the menus. There's clearly a market for that sort of paddock-to-plate system. 
Most definitely. And I mean, you know, you know where your food comes from and that's what people want. I think since COVID, people are a lot more um, inclined to know where their foods come from. And when they know it's regional, it's local, and they support their own um, businesses. And that's what it's about, broken hill people supporting one another. That's Chef, Chef Lee Cheechen speaking with Lily McEwa. A couple of texts that have come in on the text line. This one just says, goat meat, best curry ever. Uh, and another text who said that they had it in New Zealand and loved it. Can't find goat meat anywhere in Adelaide, though. Uh, and Michael's just sent a text too that says, I ate goat that had been slow cooked, North Indian style, fell off the bone, was delicious. There you go. So there's quite a few of you out there enjoying goat meat. Maybe a few more now. Are you with Selena Green? Seven minutes to one. Finally today, Germany is legalising cannabis. Following in the footsteps of Canada and the Netherlands, which made cannabis legal through cafes back in 1976, Germany is the largest CBD market in Europe, and this decision could trigger relaxation of laws in other countries as well. Paul Long is CEO of Little Green Pharma, a company out of Western Australia, which has a big production facility in Denmark near the German border, producing dried flowers, among other products used in medicinal cannabis. David Clawton asked him what's changed in Germany. Yeah, so late on Friday afternoon, the uh, the German lower house actually voted to um, legalise cannabis. Um, so that was removing rem- what what basically happens is it will remove um, cannabis from the narcotics list from April one. So so not far away, but it it sort of, it represents probably one of the most significant changes we've seen in global cannabis since since probably Canada legalised back in two two thousand eighteen. And the Netherlands did it. Quite quite a long time ago, I remember travelling in in Holland and thinking, "Wow, I could just walk into a cafe and, and order some cannabis." Yeah, that's right. I mean, the pathway has been has been a bit of a grey area in in the Netherlands, but certainly there's been access in a recreational setting there for a long time. Um, but yeah, Germany represents Germany. We think now will be the largest medical cannabis market in Europe. There's no doubt about that, and and probably well, it's actually probably the the, the largest federally legal cannabis market, full stop now globally. Obviously, the US is a big market, but it's still federally illegal. And, and obviously, Canada has been, been legalised for cannabis since 2018. So what will it mean for Germans? What will they be able to do that they couldn't do before? Yeah, good question. So basically, they've, um, they've established like a non-for-profit cannabis club. So you'll be able to join a, join a club. Um, and, and together grow cannabis, but we think that'll be relatively relatively limited. Um, there will uh, German uh, residents will also be able to cultivate and a uh, small number of plants at home, um, and possession for personal use quantities will will no longer be an issue for for Germans. But so personal yeah, use for recreation, or are we talking about them making some oil and maybe turning it into a medicinal? No, right. no, for recreation. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's the that's what that's it's that's that's the big news. But but I guess you know the decision. The big thing is actually the decision to um, remove cannabis from the, from the narcotics list. So so for, for the medical pathway, which is where Little Green Pharma are one of the leaders, it will it'll do a whole heap of things around access. It will really ramp up volume. We think in in, in Germany and things like um, you know, easing of the rules around telehealth services and e scripts and direct delivery to patients and all those things that have kind of slowed the medical pathway down in Germany now will will open up with this change. And what will that mean, do you think, for uh, for your company? I mean, is that going to be a huge boost for, for what you do? Yeah, we certainly hope so. We we think, you know, most of the um, – we've, we've got a small team in, in Berlin which is giving us feedback, but the industry seems to 
take the view there'll be a, a quantum shift in patient demand, mainly because of that ease of access. So access will be far simpler, um, which which should should sort of drive that demand and um, inside the country. It's, it's already been one of the fastest growing medical cannabis markets in the world, and we think this will uh, will will extrapolate that growth significantly this year and beyond. And more broadly, for Australian producers or, or growers or, or pharmaceutical companies, do you think this will have an impact? Yeah, there's a number of Australian companies now exporting to Germany. So we were we were one of the first to send product in there many years ago now. But yes, certainly there's a number of of producers here in Australia that are selling into that market. So it should be, you know, we think it'll prove to be a positive thing for, for our industry here in Australia as well. And what about regulations in Australia? Um, do you think that that might, I mean, there's a sense, isn't there, that this could change things in Europe, that others might follow there. What about here in Australia? Yeah, look, there certainly is a sense that um, that in Europe this will begin to um, change what's happening over there. In Australia, look, we we think that um, the medical pathway is working. You know, for us at Little Green Pharma, that's absolutely our focus. Uh, we did we did see in the New Zealand market, I think it might have been last year or the year before, but there was a referendum on this topic to legalise recreational cannabis, and and it got voted uh, voted down fifty one percent to forty nine. Um, so that's close. We think. It is very close, very close. So inevitably, I guess what the regulators are really looking at is this product safe? Um, can can a framework be set up to to manage um, how this product would be sold in the market in a recreational sense? What we see in Australia in the medical pathways is is exponential growth. We've probably got four to five percent of Australians now with a medical cannabis script, and the price of the product is basically on par. With, uh, with what you would typically see in the black market. So if you look at some of those pointers in the market, it, it feels, and, and as the, the globe begins to open up and legalise, it does, you know, you can draw a line between a, a time where you think there may be um, some further regulatory change in Australia, but, you know, our focus here is very much in the medical space. Paul Long there, CEO of the Little Green Pharma Company in WA, speaking to David Clawton. Back on goat meat, uh, Sandy from Littlehampton says she enjoys eating goat, finds it milder and more enjoyable than kangaroo meat, uh, mostly enjoys it with Indian curry. She suggests perhaps the problem is people don't know how best to cook it. Uh, and Bob from Blackwood is also a fan of goat meat. Tasty the lamb, he says, quite uh, similar. A lot of Mediterranean cu- uh, cultures... I've got to marinate it and slow cook it, he suggests. And Costa from Adelaide called to say there's a butcher shop at the western end of Grange Road that sells goat meat. The cut really varies in flavour. Hello to Spence Denny, who you've got this afternoon. Hi, Spence. Hello, Selena. You know, goat meat, I've I've never warmed to it. I I find it, maybe it's just because it's the way it's cooked, I find it a bit stringy. I don't. I can't recollect ever trying it, but I feel like maybe slow cooked in a curry might be the yeah. trick. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I, I can see that. Hey, here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in Pinaroo recently, and um, I met a shearer, but, and I couldn't get accommodation because all the all, all the accommodation was taken up by shearers in town at the moment. Uh, and shearers earn around about between you know five and six dollars per sheep they shear, right? And if you shear a couple hundred sheep a day, you're earning somewhere around about a thousand dollars a day. Why do you never find a wealthy shearer? <laughs> I'm sure they are. Maybe they're just saving up for something. I thought I was frightened you were going to ask me to do some maths then for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's a loose segue into gender equality and the pay difference between men and women. Uh. 
And uh, this is something we'll investigate after one o'clock. This is a conversation I didn't expect to be having in 2024, but it's one that has surfaced again. Absolutely. Sped City will be with you this afternoon with those stories and much, much more. Thank you so much for your company today. Don't forget, if you want to keep across any more rural news throughout the day, abc.net.au forward slash rural and check us out on the ABC Listen app as well. The ABC Listen app means you can take ABC Radio with you to the garden or around the country. Take a bit of home with you, wherever you go. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.